from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. I have another great show for you today. I'm interviewing Emily Teppe, author of The Edible Landscape. But first, let me cover a few of the usual housekeeping items before I get started. Don't forget, you can check out the show notes over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu and then just scroll down to episodes to find this week's episode, which is Still Growing Episode 512. You can also head on over to iTunes to get the show there. If you do, please give me a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you happen to be listening on Stitcher Radio, hit that little thumbs up button down in the corner. That really helps. All right. So let me share a little bit about what's going on here. September has been a tough month for us already. In fact, we've had a very sick start to our September. We were just 10 days into the month, and the kids and I are coming off a week of illness. The kids had essentially just one day of school because it started right after Labor Day, and then everybody started getting sick. First, it was PJ, and by the time I got him back on his feet, it started to hit the rest of us. Little John was the only one that made it through unscathed. This past Friday night, we were falling like dominoes. And by Saturday afternoon, when PG and John were the only ones left standing, and they're seven and nine, I finally called Grandma and Grandpa and begged them to come up. And so equipped with masks and rubber gloves, no lie, they got us through the worst of it. It wasn't pretty, but we are so grateful they came up and helped. I know it was very reassuring to the kids as well. So prior to this, things were going swimmingly around here. The little boys did have their first and only day of school, and uh, they're doing fabulous. They're starting second and fourth grade. It didn't hit me until we were in the parking lot that I hadn't taken their picture. So we jumped out of the car, and I grabbed their picture, and they told me they didn't even need me to walk them to the front door. And so their first day of school picture this year is literally standing in the parking lot, outside the front of the school. I started uh, transitioning into fall here at Everest Lane House slowly in very fall-like fashion with making just a few edits to my mantlescape. And I'll have a post on that tomorrow. And there's a sneak peek of it on my blog tonight. Uh, The Labor Day weekend also gave me a chance to get back in the garden and begin fall cleanup. Fall perennials are at their peak. And so it is really a great time to be in the garden because you still have beautiful things to look at. And yet you can get busy uh, making some headway in, in the things that are starting to fade away and die. This year, I had transplanted all of the angelica as it had popped up in my garden in June, and I placed them all together in a corner of my garden after seeing this on Heidi Highland's garden when I was on a tour of it last year. And I have to say, I love seeing them stand all together. So instead of having a pop of angelica kind of dispersed throughout my garden, seeing that giant mass underneath my flag, my American flag is just a fabulous thing this year. I'm really enjoying it. So if you haven't grown Angelica, give that a try. When you see it growing up in your garden, feel free to just dig in and move it. It transplants very easily. The cherry tomatoes on the south patio are continuing to provide for us, and that's one of the things the kids enjoy harvesting the most. Em and I had reseeded and direct sowed some red lettuce, and it was ready to be thinned and then kind of relocated in the raised bed. And once we did that, it looks nicely, evenly distributed, and it's almost ready to be harvested after our week of sickness already. My favorite find in the garden, aside from all the basketballs and other random things that were hiding among my plants, uh, was something that I found in my front garden. The bright red color of it caught my eye. First, I thought it was part of a Christmas decoration that had fallen off. And then I quickly realized it's a seed pod from a jack in the pulpit. It's absolutely glorious. 
That little tapping sound you're hearing is Sonny. He's running in his dream. He's sleeping in the studio here by me. But anyway, if you want to see a picture of this Jack in the Pulpit seed pod, you can see it on the blog post uh, that's called A Six Start to September on the blog. I also have a funny post this week called Basketball Gardening. So I know you've heard of lasagna gardening, but if you haven't heard of basketball gardening, you're going to want to check this post out. I've also started cutting back my spent sunflowers. I like to place the heads on my bird feeders until they're completely devoid of seeds, but I've taken a picture and and kind of showed you how I position them so that the birds can still get at them. And I find that they're kind of a cheery little reminder of summer. Phil headed out to Boston for his two-month stint at Harvard's AMP program, and so now that everyone is on the mend, we're all busy learning and growing around here. September is such a month of change. Do you recall that song from the Fantastics called Try to Remember? That's been going through my head a lot this week. And I did just that. I looked back through our past Septembers, especially since the kids have been in school. And I wrote a post sharing some photos of our past Septembers. It was a good reminder of how everything keeps changing. And September really is a month where I find myself acutely aware of change and how we're all handling these big transitions that come every fall. September is also my anniversary month. And I have a picture on my blog of the really beautiful bouquet that Phil sent me. Unfortunately, I was sick in bed with Emma when it arrived this weekend. And miracle of miracles, PJ managed to get it in the house while I was laying there dying. And we also had Harry Potter uh, movies going over and over and over again on the TV in our bedroom because I couldn't find the remote. And so I think we ended up watching episodes four and six just you know on a constant rotation. And then to make matters worse, once we did find the remote, the only thing playing on on, uh, ABC Family this weekend was actually the Harry Potter Marathon. And so we just ended up watching it like crazy. And I think I, I know the movies better than I ever anticipated I would. So anyway, um, I did manage to catch a glimpse of this bouquet when my parents came up and they carried it by for me to see as they were keeping us all alive this weekend. And it really is beautiful. So have a happy anniversary, sweetie. I know you're listening. And that's the view from up here this week. So this episode of Still Growing is really cool because I got a chance to sit down and chat with Emily Tepe, who's the author of The Edible Landscape. And Emily is an edible landscaping expert, but she's also a garden writer and a researcher. And I discovered Emily through her blog, which is called artichokesandzinnias.com. On her blog, Emily shares her genuine appreciation for the aesthetic value of edibles. And she has a particular passion for Swiss chard. And often, Oftentimes, it's those little details, like having a soft spot for Swiss chard, that help us find those kindred spirits among us. And I'm quite certain that that little bit about Swiss chard is what led me straight to Emily, because once I read that, I thought, okay, we have that in common. She's got to be a great gal. And guess what? She really is. Ironically, she can't currently have a garden of her own because it's against the rules where she lives. Why is that? because she's living on a historical ranch inside the Grand Teton National Park. And as I shared with her, all gardeners have to make some trade-offs. So no garden, living inside the Grand Teton National Park on a historic ranch, hmm, it is a trade-off indeed. When Emily isn't living on the ranch in Wyoming, she's back at her other cold climate home, which is in Minnesota. Emily and I chatted actually back in late August, just as her beloved Minnesota State Fair was getting underway. And as I shared with her, if it's any consolation, the fair this year suffered from an extreme heat wave, which burned the attendance this year. So it was probably a good year to skip. On writing her book with Voyager Press, Emily is quoted as saying, the book happened the way we dream of books happening. An editor who read my blog contacted me to ask if I'd be interested in writing a book on edible landscaping. How could I resist? And just about two years later, the book became a reality. Emily's interview is going to be divided into two parts because we got on so famously. I never know when that's going to happen, but when it does, I just keep the interview going 
and uh, we end up making a two-part show. So just like with Nancy Peters in the last two episodes, this interview with Emily is going to take uh, two shows to get through, but it's great content, and I know you're going to love her just as much as I did. So everybody, meet Emily. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. All right. Why don't we start out? Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? What's your background? Sure. Well, let's see. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. So I grew up in a city and I've really lived in the city pretty much all my life. Growing up, I was I was a very artsy kid. Gardening, honestly, was never really much a part of that. So, <laughs> so I ended up, I went to school and got a, uh, got a bachelor's and a master's degree in theater. And I was really mostly involved in the design ends of things. So I did um, scenic design and painting and ended up working for companies where I designed uh, museum exhibits and, and touring promotional events and things like that. And also had a mural painting business on the side. Design is a big part of my background. And, and that's, um, that's kind of how I, how I ended up doing some more designy things when I finally got into plants. I didn't actually end up getting much into plants and gardening until about 2006, I decided to go back to school. I was, I was a little tired of, of, spending all my time indoors and um, working at the computer all the time. And I had started reading more and more about local foods and, and sustainable agriculture. And I thought that it might be something that I'd really want to get involved in. And so I decided instead of just, you know, getting a new job or going out on my own, I decided to go back to school and um, get yet another master's degree, this time in horticulture, and started working um, with a professor that, that does sustainable fruit production research. And so that's really where my, my focus in terms of work started, started going is, is working on fruit trees and, and um, berries. And, and we work a lot on, on sustainable production practices for ma- mainly small farmers in the upper Midwest. So we deal with a lot of cold and winter issues. And, um, and it was just, it was a great change for me. It was, it was a great way to get me working outdoors and working in a field that that really um, I became very very interested in in the last few years. So it's been it's been a great career change for me, and I've still been able to use some of my design background in that. Um, certainly with the edible landscaping stuff, but also just designing websites for our for our extension materials and and things like that. So I get to do both of those things now, which is really fun for me. Now, you got the second master's at the University of Minnesota, is that right? I did, yes. Now, when you're doing something like that, for listeners who are interested in in pursuing something similar, do you have to take a whole bunch of, you know, general kind of liberal arts curriculum all over again, or can you just go through the master's program? And is that you know, a two-year process? What does that look yeah, like? Yeah, you know, it really depends on the program. I There is a great program at the University of Minnesota that has... It's kind of changed now since I was involved in it. It, it, it used to be um, the Master of Agriculture in Horticulture program runs through the Department of Horticultural Science. And it was really, it was a, more of a professional program geared toward people who were going for a second career or wanting to get some kind of certification in their current career in horticulture. So it really wasn't as focused on the science end of things as a Master of Science in Horticulture would be, which is really, really focused a lot on, on genetics and, and more of the science end of things. But the part of it that I really got involved in is more of the on-the-ground production. And so that didn't require quite the science background that the, that the Master of Science would have, would have required. If I would have gone that route, yes, I definitely would have had to go back and take a lot of prerequisites in, in biology and and um, chemistry and, and things like that. I did have to take one chemistry course, um, which I was able to do at a community college. And once I was successful in that, I was able to start taking the preliminary courses right in horticulture. And the program takes about two years to get through. Now it's currently run through the Department of and it's the Continuing Education Department at the university. Hmm. And so it's pretty much the same thing, the same program. It's just it's just run by a different department now. 
you have this kind of unique background because you had this whole other life before you went into this. How do you, when you're with other edible landscapers or other people kind of of your ilk, how do you think of yourself as maybe kind of set apart or having a unique approach just because of the fact that you've got all these other skills that you brought to the table? <laughs> yeah, um, I probably don't have quite as much gardening experience as most of them do um, because I really started learning this just in the last few years. But I think, I think having... When it comes to the the design aspect of it, I think I do have a nice background in some of that theory that maybe people that came from it from the plant direction might not necessarily have. And um, it's certainly, there are a lot more things that you need to know about landscape design and landscape architecture that I haven't necessarily learned um, in an official capacity. But a lot of the a lot of the theories really really are. Um, are applicable in all areas of design. So things like balance and unity and color and texture, all of those things that I would apply to design in a different area, exhibit design and, and event design that I did before, really do apply when, when you're talking about plants too. But then there are other specific aspects of plants that you need to know to work into that. So light, of, light requirements, of course, and and nutrient and soil, things like that that plants require that might not have been applicable to other areas of design but definitely come into this. So so it really, I think, gave me a little bit of a boost in that creative sense and that I already had that, um, that background that I was able to apply as I was learning about plants and what they require to grow. Now, was there anyone in your family that helped spark your passion for gardening? <laughs> you know, honestly, there was... There was no one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to think. No, there really was no one in my family that grew more than just a couple of tomatoes or beans on the patio. Um, my mom was always very into growing flowers around our yard, and they always looked fantastic. But she was never really that interested or never really thought about growing many food plants. Um, we did, you know, my family did move into a house for a couple of years. It was kind of out in the country, and we had, I don't know, 10 acres or so, and there was this one spot that was fenced in where a garden had been, and my mom decided to go for it and, and, and try her hand at gardening, and it was enormous. It was, I don't know, probably about 20 by 50 feet, and she grew some of everything, and it was so much work that it became a burden for all of us, and I remember just endless weeds and you know, hiding inside doing my homework, I wouldn't have to go out and weed the garden and, you know, the classic mountains of enormous zucchini that we didn't know what to do with. Um, and it just wasn't that great of an experience and we never had a garden after that. So I think, I think she just started out a little too big and, um, it just, it just wasn't that fun. And so I learned, I think I learned a lot, not even knowing it at that point, but I learned a lot about, about some, some things you should think about before you, you take on a garden of that size. That is kind of an interesting story in the sense that you had kind of this rough introduction to gardening, <laughs> and then here you end up doing it in your adulthood. What does mom think of that? I bet she was a little incredulous, wasn't she? Well, you know, she was actually, she was pretty thrilled. Um, and and later on, as I started getting into this, she, like I said, she always had a beautiful flower garden, and I started giving her seeds. You know, maybe you should try some tomatoes. Maybe you should stick some peppers in there. And she did start doing that, and she's she's really she really enjoyed having those few extra things um, going on in the garden where she could then actually get a little bit of food from there, as you know, in addition to um, in addition to enjoying all the flowers. So she she has a yard that's that's got pretty awful soil. It's, there's a lot of clay, and so she's been able to grow some of the really tough perennial ornamentals and. Most of the edibles end up in in containers tucked in here and there, but it works really well. And she's I think she she enjoyed she enjoyed seeing me have fun with it, and and then got into it herself a little bit after that. Before we get too far into the interview, I have to have you share with people where you're calling me from because it sounds pretty <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though I still work for the University of Minnesota, I actually live most of the year these days out in Wyoming. And um, 
I'm living, my, my, my husband got a job out here managing a historic ranch property inside of Grand Teton National Park. So we actually live and work in the national park, which, um, which makes gardening a little bit tricky because uh, there are park policies that you're not allowed to grow any fruits and vegetables in a national park because of the importance of having all the native plants. So I'm in a little, I'm in a little gardening hiatus right now, um, which is a little tricky for me. I do have a couple hanging baskets that I've been playing around with some fun combinations of, of herbs and edibles and flowers. Um, but, but I don't have a lot of space to garden myself right now. So I'm working on finding a spot to do that, but it is a beautiful place to be. And, um, it's a, it's a gorgeous spot, beautiful summertime, beautiful, harsh winters. Um, but it's been a, it's been a nice place to spend time. And, and, and I'm learning a little bit from people here about gardening at even a harsher climate than Minnesota has, because. The season is certainly much shorter here, and we're at 6,500 feet, so it gets very cold at night, even in the summertime. Um, so it makes things like tomatoes a little a little tricky to grow because they need that heat at night too, and so they grow very slowly here. But but I'm learning. I'm learning a bit about what it's like to grow vegetables at at elevation. A quick question for you is how long have you been out there? And then do you have to just keep pinching yourself or do you ever get to the point where you just accept that this is your daily life? Yeah, we've been out here for about two years and I've spent most of the last two growing seasons back in Minnesota for work. But this season I spent out here. And um, so I've been back and forth quite a bit but I'm starting to spend more and more time out here. And it we we do pinch ourselves a lot. It's it's a pretty amazing place to be to walk out your door and see the the Tetons right outside and and just to live in such a beautiful natural place. I'm certainly learning a lot more about native plants and um in which things grow the best here, but yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful spot to be. Wow. Well, you'll look back on it for the rest of your life, I bet. It's a really tremendous experience. Definitely, definitely. So artichokesandzinnias.com is your blog, which I think is a beautiful name. When <laughs> did you start writing it, and what was your inspiration? Tell us about this baby of yours, Artichokes and Zinnias. Sure. Well, the blog started out as part of a project at the university, and at the time it had a different name. I've since changed the name. Um but at the time that I created the edible landscape demonstration garden at the university, I was I was learning a lot at that point. I really hadn't done a whole lot of gardening up to that point, and so I was learning as I went, and and I still am, frankly. And so I I wanted to not only share the process of developing that demonstration garden and that whole project throughout the season, but I also wanted to connect people to resources that I was finding very helpful as I was learning. So anytime that I had a a bit of a challenge in the garden, I would look up resources and figure out what I needed to do and then share what was happening and then also share the resources that helped me. So it was just my way of of doing a little bit of outreach. And then as I passed off the the university project to to someone else and allowed uh, students to start working on on the design and the maintenance of the garden, it started then becoming more of just my own blog and my own thoughts from what I was doing in my own garden. And so now it's a little bit trickier since I don't have a spot to garden. I'm not coming across these these challenges every day, but I'm starting to think more about what issues people are having in their gardens or that I hear about or or just trying to connect people with ideas that, that maybe I'm having that I can share and get them excited about too. And then I've also tried to to work in recipes and ideas for what people can do with some of the things that they're growing in their in their edible landscapes because things like kale, maybe people don't have quite so many ideas about how to use those in the kitchen. So I, I try to try out different recipes and share with people things that I think um, are really tasty and good uses for things that they're growing. So it's kind of evolved over time. It's amazing how much inspiration we draw from actually having a garden, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, when I had the garden and I was working out there every day, I couldn't, I mean, I I was writing so much that there was always something in mind to write about. So yeah, it's definitely good to, to have the garden there. It really is inspiring. So now what compelled you to write a book about edibles? Tell us how this whole thing happened for you. 
Yeah, well, a couple things, I guess. Um, first, as I was designing my first garden at the U, I, I picked up every single book on the topic that I could find, from you know, more generic gardening books to actual edible landscaping books. And there are some really good ones out there. The pictures are always super inspiring. But what I've found in a lot of garden books is that the text is often kind of dry. And I was mostly curious to see if it was possible to write a gardening book that's not only pretty to look at, but also fun to read. And so that was a challenge that I set out for myself. And I hope that I've done that because a lot of times when I've read gardening books, I kind of skip over the text. And I know there's really good stuff in there, but it just doesn't always hold my attention. So I hoped, I hope that I was able to, to make it interesting to read. Yes. And then, um, secondly, most gardening books that I've found are written by people in warmer climates. And not that there are tons of issues that we that are different in colder climates, but there are some that I think are that are not covered in a lot of these books. And so I wanted to address a few issues that that northern gardeners face um, that just don't really show up in, in a lot of other books. So those were the couple things that I had in mind as I started writing and um uh, and really, there was a lot of content there that I was able to, to pull together and just tried to fill some of the blanks that I felt were left in some other books. Now, when I think about edible landscaping, I always automatically start thinking about our food and the state of our food. And food has become so anonymous to us. We just don't even know the story of our food anymore, where it comes from, why we should eat food. And we really do need to know that story and that that food comes from a place and not someplace else. When you were writing your book, did did those kinds of um, thoughts occur to you, and and how do you try to weave that in to the whole edible story? Yeah, yeah, those things are in my mind a lot, and certainly were when I was writing the book. Um, because when you really, when you really think about gardening and the time and money that you spend on it, it it doesn't always necessarily come out economically ahead, but. But I certainly think that, that what you said about, about knowing that story of our food and knowing where it comes from is really important. And thankfully, I think people are really starting to realize that more and more lately. Um, you know, we have so much, we have access to, to so much food in this country, more food now than I think we ever have before. And, and in a way, that's really great. If I have a craving for strawberry pie in January, I can have it and it's not a problem. Um, if I'm on a road trip, I can find bananas at the gas station and, you know, that's, it's, it's easy. So in a way that's really great that we have so much access, but in many other ways, I think it's not great because it has really made us take food for granted. And then yes, it does become very anonymous and, and that's a bad thing. Not only, not only because of issues like food safety and GMOs and industrial ag practices and chemical fertilizers and all those kinds of things, which I mean, you put all those together and they are <laughs> pretty scary. Um, but also, I think more, even more important than that, the fact that our food has become anonymous, I think, has stripped away a large part of what makes us human and what, what gives us our, our culture. Human culture and, and just society has always been based so much on where we get our food from and how we produce our food. And that now we're so we're so disconnected from that. I think it does strip a part of that away from us. And I think a lot of other countries have been able to hang on to that. In the Mediterranean, there's they're I think they're still very connected to where their food comes from and and it's a very very deep part of their culture. But here it's just it's really become very distant from our from our everyday life. And so I think thankfully I think people are starting to feel that and feel that that void that's left from from having the creation of their food be a, a, a deep part of their lives. And so I think that's part of why it's becoming much more popular again for people to start gardening. Yes, and that leads me into my next question. You know, I think the more high-tech we get, the more high-touch we want to be. And mm-hmm. so um, tell us a little bit about your observations regarding the, the popular trend, which is 
to incorporate edibles into our landscape, that it's mm. not just about having pretty gardens, but also, mm-hmm. you know, functional and just having a lot of food incorporated into the beds. Right, right. Well, I think, like I said, I think people are starting to understand that that disconnection that we've been feeling and, and are starting to understand also the resources that go into getting food to our tables, as well as the resources that go into maintaining a really pretty lawn and ornamental landscape. And I think we're starting to feel that that pinch a little bit of, of those resources. And so there is certainly efficiency in edible landscaping that, that I think people are becoming more and more attracted to. They can feel much better about watering vegetables that will feed their families as opposed to just watering a lawn that's simply pretty to look at. Um, also, I think fresh food and, and cooking has become really trendy lately with all the cooking shows on TV, and, uh, and there's so much talk about it and so many food blogs, and, and everyone wants to be a part of this. And, and I think people really want to create and are discovering that the best way to do that is to grow it yourself because the, the flavor is so much better and there's, so much that, there's just so much more quality in the things that you grow at home. And it really, I think people are starting to taste that again and starting to realize that the food we've been eating for so long has been so bland and, and flavorless and that you really can get wonderful things right from your own yard and that it doesn't, it doesn't have to take a ton of time and it doesn't have to take up a lot of space. And so I think all those things together are really making this a very popular method of gardening. Now, do you see a trend for younger generations to be getting involved in the garden with edibles? I certainly do. I think I think schools are having a a huge impact on that. I'm just I'm so impressed with with how many schools are are teaching kids about food and establishing gardens and teaching them where their food comes from and and that their broccoli actually comes from a plant which they might not have known before. Um, it certainly does say something about how our society has changed, that kids have to learn this in school and that they're not learning it at home, but at least they're learning it somewhere. And if they can come home and beg their parents to help them start a garden, then we're definitely making making progress. And we're actually seeing a lot of kids teaching their parents about gardening, which again, doesn't really seem logical, but but it's happening. And so they're getting enthusiastic about it somewhere. And that's a really wonderful thing. So I definitely see younger generations really getting excited about it and wanting to wanting to grow things themselves and, and be a part of their own their own food production. Well, and miracles happen, right? Because there was a young Emily not so long ago that thought she would never <laughs> garden and now she's got a <laughs> master's right. in horticulture. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while, but I, <laughs> but I got there. <laughs> well, now, um, if you can look into your crystal ball, and I'm sure you're very tied into the university and, and probably a lot of um, academic information. What Mm -hmm. is the future for edible landscaping? What are you hearing that's new and cutting edge in this field? Well, maybe not even connected to the university as much. Well, but maybe they're driving it a bit in in terms of putting gardens like these out for for people to, to see and to learn from. But I actually think that we might start seeing more edibles being incorporated into public landscapes and and commercial landscaping. I've already seen things like kale and, and chard planted outside commercial buildings among annual flowers, and, and they look fantastic. And I think I could see that happening more and more. I could see, I could see more fruit trees being planted along city streets, things like that, as, as more cities try to become more sustainable. And I think, I think the big challenge there is management because all of these plants do take maintenance. It's similar to the way an ornamental landscape would, but maybe even more so, especially because of the harvesting part of it. And so there will be management in terms of maintenance and also determining who gets to have the food and, and how that would be distributed. So I think it would be a really great trend to see big companies having gardens planted outside their their headquarters where that food would be used to feed their employees. So I could see things like that happening, and, and I hope it does, because I think that would be a really great trend. And just a great thing for us to start seeing these food-producing plants 
just every day, wherever wherever we are in whatever landscape we're looking at. And you know, in a few interviews that I'd read about you, you say the garden is returning home, you know, that it's in vogue to have a garden again. You mentioned Victory Gardens. So during the, basically during the second, the first and second world wars, the governments of, of the U.S. and of other countries, I know Canada and Great Britain and, and Germany, um, encouraged their citizens to plant gardens to reduce the the pressure on the food supply and allow more food to be available for the troops. And so the government was really encouraging everyone by, by handing out seeds and, and creating programs that taught people how to, how to garden for those people that were living in cities that may not have done that before. Certainly people were still growing gardens in the countryside, but, but in urban areas, it just wasn't common for people to grow gardens. And so with this encouragement, urban dwellers were started planting gardens in residential yards and vacant lots and parks throughout cities throughout the country. And it really did make a significant impact on the war effort and and gave people at home the opportunity to really make a difference. So after the after the war, of course, food supplies did rebound after a while and people stopped gardening in the city. And um and I think that's where we've been for so long. Ever since the end of World War II, there's been an increasing food supply, and people just didn't need to garden as much. But now I think with so many things like the food safety issues that are cropping up so regularly and the continual revelation of of poor industrial food production practices and things like that, the concept of the Victory Garden, I think, is making a comeback, that people are feeling the responsibility to provide a little bit more for themselves and to make sure that it's safe for their families and they know what's going into that food. So I definitely see it kind of being a victory garden again because it is that individual effort helping to improve conditions among everyone you know, in the whole country. So, yeah, I think it's a good thing. And if people are calling them victory gardens again, I think that's fantastic. And the fact that the, fact that the White House has a garden on its property again hasn't happened since the last World War. And so I think that's a really good um, encouragement for us, too, to be seeing that happening at the White House and, and feeling like, oh, maybe we should get involved in that, too. The kids were pretty tickled today because they we just find out that they got a second dog and they named the dog Sunny, and our dog is Sunny, and so they felt like it Aww. was you know, a sign from the universe that we have mm-hmm. the perfect name for our dog. So. Definitely. <laughs> kind, of a, kind of an offshoot here, but I had to throw it in. And, and of course, yeah. we're taping this late <laughs> August, so it might not be breaking news by the time this goes to air. But um, one of the things I really wanted to ask you had to do with something I read in your book, and um, there's a part in your book where you guide people through some imagery for um, how to plan their edible landscape. And now that I've gotten to know you a little bit through this interview, I'm assuming that you're drawing on your design background, you know, when you're doing this kind of a process. But basically, um, the questions you asked were, what do you see in your mind's eye? How do you imagine your garden, a border along the fence, a few beds here and there, Take time to ponder how far do you want to go to pick fresh veggies for dinner, which I thought was a great question. And when it comes to how you design, do your aesthetic judgments tend to be based more on facts or intuition? Hmm. Certainly a combination of the two. Um, And I think between those two, one of them is a little stronger at certain times and, and the other at other times. They definitely go hand in hand for me. Um, you need to know some facts, certainly, before you let intuition and creativity into it. For, for example, you need to know where the sun travels in your yard. You need to know a little bit about the plants you want to grow. Do they require a lot of sun or not? Are they heavy nutrient feeders or light feeders? How big do they get? Things like that. Um, you need to know those facts in order to start plugging things in. But I think sometimes we get a little hung up on those facts also, and and it, and I think people get a little stuck on the creative part. So a fact may be that my yard is extremely small. And while I may have always imagined this huge garden with tons of perennials and, and fruit trees going off as far as I could see, my tiny little urban yard might not allow that. And so that then leads me to be a little bit more creative about, well, what could I do with this tiny space to really make it 
spectacular. Sometimes my creativity drives me to find the facts in order to make something work the way I want it to. And then sometimes the facts drive me to consider design possibilities that I may not have thought, thought of otherwise. I'm always very curious when I talk to gardeners, how do you stay abreast of information? How do you like to educate yourself in the field of gardening? What resources do you like to use? Mm-hmm. I like to, certainly I like to visit gardens. Um, so many public gardens these days are incorporating a lot of edibles into their displays. And it's always really inspiring to see what these places do because there are so many really talented, creative people working at public gardens. And, and they come up with things that I just never would have even imagined. So it's always fun to do that. But then as far as, as, far as resources for, for fact, I tend to stick to university resources almost exclusively. Um, there, are so, there are so many resources from university research and, and especially extension websites that, um, that just they cover everything you'd need to know. And, and depending on which region you're in, you can find quite a few resources from different universities that would apply to your area. At the University of Minnesota, we might focus on certain things, whereas maybe the University of Wisconsin has put out resources on, on something else. And, and so certainly their resources would apply to what I'm doing in Minnesota. So it's important to think about if you find a, if you find a resource from a, a region that's different than yours, there might be certain things you can take from it that would apply, but you need to remember your climate might be different and... Uh, growing conditions might be a little bit different, but a lot of the resources really do apply. Now, unfortunately, sometimes university resources tend to get lost among the very loud noise of the many garden forums and and other websites that are out there. There is so much out there on gardening these days that it's a little tricky to wade through and, and pick out what is really reliable. But I always feel like the university ones are the best places to start. And certainly the forums can be great because you're getting advice from people who are doing this. But sometimes it takes so long to wade through all of that that it's hard to get to the, to the real facts. And so I tend to stick to the university sites. But usually when I'm searching, I'll add whatever I'm searching for. If it's some you know, Japanese beetle damage on, on raspberries, I'll, um, I'll add the term university or edu at the end of my search and that usually brings up university resources to the top and then that helps me weed through a lot of things that that I'm you know I might have been distracted with before mm. and gets me to the really factual stuff that's a great tip for people and in the event you ever encounter conflicting university advice i'm assuming you always err on the side of the university of minnesota and the golden gophers uh-huh, of course I do. <laughs> Go Gophers. Well. Yeah, yeah. But you know, some of the things that that we we work on, for example, the area that I work in, we really focus on commercial production a lot more. Whereas I know I've gotten a lot of home fruit growing resources from from a couple of different universities that that might just cover some little different some things a little bit differently. And so I tend to look at a few from my region and pick out parts that really seem to overlap the best and, and, and use that to go from. Now, certainly in every yard, there, there are going to be some things that are a little different. So it's still, still a bit of trial and error. But, but if I find some consistent content from a few different places, I feel pretty certain that, that, it's, a, that it's reliable. What have you learned from writing about edibles that you didn't appreciate until you wrote your book? Mm. Um, probably that there are a lot of ways to do things and there's never one right answer <laughs> because when trying to write a kind of a guidebook like this, I would love to be able to say, this is how fast your tomato will grow. This is how big it'll get. This is when it'll ripen. And it just never is that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are things, it, it's so, and it's so different in everyone, in everyone's yard and every, your soil will be different. Your little microclimate will be different. The way the sun travels is different. And so it's, it's tricky to tell people this is what you should do because there are probably a hundred other answers that would work just as well. And so in writing the book, I really had to, I really had to, uh, 
to dig through all those things and decide, well, which, which have worked best for me and which maybe are, have been the most successful or the easiest or, or look the best. I just had to, I had to pick one and just hope that people would understand that if it didn't work exactly that way in their yard, there are a lot of reasons why that would be. But that was definitely something I learned that I hadn't really thought of before. Hmm. There's, um, there's not, there's never one right answer when it comes to gardening. And it's really all about trial and error. And any author of any gardening book can only give so much advice. At some point, you really just have to get out there and try things yourself and, and learn from it yourself. And that's really half the fun of gardening for me is just, is that learning process. Yep. Now you mentioned before that the focus of your book is growing edibles in northern climates. And mm-hmm. it's true that places like Minnesota and Wyoming and other cold places have many challenges. What are some of the things that you know you made a point to suggest in your book that maybe other typical edible books leave out? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think two things two things come to mind in particular. The first being how to get a lot out of your garden in a relatively short amount of time. Not only not only how much food you'll get, but also the the looks, the the beauty of it. Because if you're if you plant a lot of vegetables, you'll be waiting a lot of that season for them to to fill in. You'll have lots of tiny little plants growing for a couple months and then in late August and September everything is going to be going crazy and it'll look it'll look beautiful finally. Um, and so I really focus on how to get a lot out of your garden, both food and looks, throughout the whole season, which is why I really focus on planting a lot of ornamentals as well, because as your food plants are filling in, those ornamentals are looking really nice, whether they be perennials or annuals. If you plant a few annuals in there, you've got a lot of color immediately. If you have a lot of perennial ornamentals in your yard, you've got a lot of structure there. That the, that the food plants can be tucked in around. And so I think that's a really important thing for us to think about where we have a really short season is to try to make the garden look really nice for as long as possible. Um, so, for example, also things like uh, tomato support. There, we're, we're always trying to figure out a way to support these tomato plants or other climbing plants. And uh, and for much of the season, these support structures are going to be the thing we're looking at because the plants do take a while to fill in. And so I think it's really important to be creative about what what you're using for these support structures. Make them look really, really nice. So while you're waiting for that plant to fill in, you've got this beautiful architectural element in your garden that looks great. So I think... Um, Maximizing, maximizing the season is something we really need to think about in colder climates. And then also, I think, I try to focus on in the book also to think about what the garden will look like in the winter. So planting perennials that, that will give your garden structure and that will look nice with, with snow on them and having fruit trees and shrubs that can help, can help hold snow in your yard and, and hold it in an interesting looking way and also with these woody plants, they just give a lot of structure to, to the garden. I think a lot of times we, we ignore our, our yards in the wintertime, but they really can look beautiful if we leave some of these you know, perennial ornamentals, if we leave their seed heads there in, in the wintertime, they just create a beautiful structure in the garden and then give something for the birds to come in and, and peck around at in the wintertime. So, so those are a couple of things that, that I've tried to focus on that that might not be covered in, in many other gardening books, especially especially those ones written by, you know, people in California that just don't really have to deal with with um, snowy winters and, and short seasons. Yes. Now, after years of gardening, you begin to build a vocabulary and a familiarity with the plants you enjoy growing. I know you don't have a garden of your own right now, but you're probably Mm -hmm. getting some pent-up demand. If you (laughs) had a garden or if you could imagine that that we could magically get a plot for you in the Tetons there, Mm -hmm. what would be some of the first things you'd plant right away that you just absolutely are passionate about growing? Yeah, sure. I would, I love incorporating uh, fruiting plants, so fruit trees and, and fruit shrubs, I think are great things to have in the garden because 
because they're they're there year after year, and they produce more and more year after year. And so even though they might take a little bit of effort in terms of pruning and things like that, they're so productive, and they also look really, really nice in the garden. <laughs> so I would definitely be planting, planting fruit trees and shrubs immediately. Um, and then certainly a lot of the short season things, especially living out here where where things like tomatoes and peppers just don't grow very well. I, If you've heard me talk at all before, and even from reading the book, I, I'm sure you know that I have a particular fondness for chard. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that grows perfectly anywhere, whether the season is super short or super long. It's a beautiful plant, and it grows so easily, and it just doesn't take much effort. And so I like to stick a bunch of that in, that and kale and other leafy greens, especially in a place where there's such a short growing season. Those things grow really, really well. And then I always like to stick herbs in wherever I can. They're so easy to grow, and I use them all the time in cooking, and so they're just they're very, very productive and very high-return plants because they're easy to grow, and I get a lot from them. And... Um, and so that's that's actually something that I really try to focus on too, is plants that produce a lot over the season as opposed to something that you get just maybe one large harvest from. So something like um, cabbage or heading broccoli, I really never plant those because you wait so long, and the the plants are beautiful and they're and they get huge, but then you just get one harvest from them. And it just doesn't feel that efficient to me, especially in the short season garden. So instead of those heading types, I plant things like um, like the small sprouting broccoli, uh, broccoli rob or rapini, it's sometimes called, because that way you can get little harvests of broccoli throughout a larger part of the season instead of waiting just for one big head of broccoli. And then instead of cabbage, I'll plant things like bok choy, things like that that I can get bits from throughout hmm. the whole season, which is why I also love to plant chard because I harvest that all season long. And um, lettuces too. I like to plant the leaf lettuces as opposed to the heading lettuces because I can cut leaves off yep. for a lot larger part of the season instead of waiting for that one head of lettuce. Yep, I do so that I too. So like yeah, I like things that, that uh, produce throughout the whole, the whole season. And, um, and then I also just, I really like climbing things and I like incorporating containers and, and just being able to play around with things like that. So, so that's what my, my dream garden would, would involve and, hmm. and I'll have it one of these days. Too. Yes, you will. You will. <laughs> now there's the design world and then there's gardening. And to me, it's always a bit of an oxymoron because it's so easy to lose control. Mm-hmm. But how do you design successfully in gardens? Can you give people some tips, maybe maybe some gardens you've designed? Because obviously, you know, nature reclaims it. It wants to go back to the wild. You're constantly fighting that. Right, right. I would offer one word, honestly, to help people design, and that is simplicity. It's so easy to try to grow so many things. It's so attractive to want to grow so many different varieties of tomatoes and, and you, you just want everything in your yard. And certainly I'm, I'm guilty of that too. I've done that where I've planted way too much and it just becomes kind of a mess. And so I've gotten to the point where I start out with a list of everything I want to grow, everything that I can imagine, and then I cut it in half immediately. And, and it really just helps keeping it simple doesn't necessarily mean it's it's boring. It's, it means that you, number one, can handle it because if you have too much going on, it's just hard to keep up with. And, uh, and it just, it can get a little messy. And so by keeping it simple, you have a few plants that you maybe plant big masses of and repeat those. So, so you've got some nice flow and unity through your garden. It really just makes it very, very elegant as opposed to having little spots of, of different things just scattered all around. So simplicity is definitely the word in terms of design. And it, and it applies to all areas of design. And again, it doesn't mean boring. Rather, it means a few elements used very, very thoughtfully to create something very elegant and beautiful. Hmm. 
Now, what are some of the more creative and standout edible gardening practices that you've seen while visiting gardens? Something that really struck you? Mm, certain practices, I guess, that inspire me. Um, I've seen, for example, large containers worked right into landscapes that contain maybe uh, a dwarf fruit tree or raspberries or even zucchini. I think growing zucchini in containers is really great. But by putting these containers, not just using containers on your patio if you don't have any garden space to speak of, but actually using containers as part of a design in your garden beds, I think is really, really interesting because not only does it does it contain those plants that maybe you need to bring in for the winter or maybe something like raspberries that gets out of control yep. very easily, it, it contains those and gives them their own space, but it also raises them up and creates another level of growing space in your garden. And I think that that verticality is something that we don't think about often enough mm-hmm. in gardens. We always think about just planting things in the ground and that's where they are. But if you can get things up a little bit, it makes your garden so much more interesting. And I've seen just some really beautiful uses of, of really large or, or smaller groups of containers um, spread out in gardens here and there really thoughtfully that I think look really, really nice. I'm always intrigued by how people deal with fencing because certainly in some areas you simply cannot have a garden without a fence. Where I live right now, if I were to try to have a garden on this property I live on, the moose and the elk and the bears and the little ground squirrels would annihilate everything. <laughs> so, and so I'm always intrigued to see what people do with fences. I, I think there's this misconception that if I have to fence in my garden, it's really not going to be beautiful anymore. And I don't think that's true at all. And so I'm always, always looking for good fence ideas and, and just ways to make them look really nice, whether it's the actual material that's used or how things are planted along the fence, because it really can look spectacular. All right, that's it for our show today. That's part one of my interview with Emily Teppi, the author of The Edible Landscape. I want to thank Emily for being a guest on our show today. I also want to thank you for listening. You can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher and the BlackBerry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to the blog posts to get them via email. I'll have all the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this episode in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash stillgrowing with sixfootmama. You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so Emma's going to help us out tonight and read some poetry about the month of September. Emma? September by Helen Hunt Jackson. The golden rod is yellow, the corn is turning brown, the trees and apple orchards with fruit are bending down. The gentian's bluest fringes are curling in the sun. In dusty pods the milkweed, its hidden silk has spun. The sedges flaunt their harvest in every meadow nook. And asters by the brookside make asters in the brook. From dewy lanes at morning, the grape-sweet odors rise. At noon, the roads all flutter with yellow butterflies. By all these lovely tokens, September days are here, with summer's best of weather and autumn's best of cheer. But none of all this beauty, which floods the earth and air, is unto me the secret which makes September fair. Tis a thing which I remember, to name it thrills me yet. One day of one September, I never can forget.
Okay, and now Emma is going to read from uh, the Fantastics, the song Try to Remember, lyrics by Tom Jones. And it premiered Tuesday, May 3rd, 1960. Tried to remember the kind of September when life was slow and oh, so mellow. Try to remember the kind of September when grass was green and grain was yellow. Try to remember the kind of September when you were a tender and callow fellow. Try to remember, and if you remember, then follow. Try to remember when life was so tender that no one wept except the willow. Try to remember when life was so tender that dreams were kept beside your pillow. Try to remember when life was so tender that love was an ember about to billow. Try to remember, and if you remember, then follow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, although you know the snow will follow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, without a hurt, the heart is hollow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember the fire of September that made us mellow. Deep in December, our hearts should remember and follow. Thanks, sweetie. Now I'm going to bed. All right, go to bed. Good night, everybody. <laughs>